0: Big news, everybody. It is time once again for my Together In Love four-month relationship mentorship. We had such an amazing time with such a awesome group of people from singles and couples from all over the world, from all different types of relationship constructs, and we went through a four-month process to understand how to love ourselves authentically, how to open your heart to real love and what that really means, create relationships that leave you and even your current or your future partners fulfilled. And not only that, one thing that I hear more often than not from a lot of my clients is the fact that they don't have community, that they feel like their friends and family don't accept how they choose to live their life. And so I wanted to create a community of like-minded people so you guys can support each other and know that you have your tribe and you have people who love you unconditionally. So this is 16 weeks of conscious relationship workshops and coachings with myself and with some of the people who have been my mentors and who have helped me along my path. Um, You also get guest trainings from them. You get, like I said, one-on-one coaching and group coaching with me. I'm bringing on someone who I love dearly, Serenia Bryant, who is the co-coach. If you're not familiar with her, go check her out on Instagram. She has so much information when it comes to love, sex, and relationships. And what I found so amazing about her, she takes these really um, challenging concepts that we can all relate to and puts them in easy-to-understand, digestible um, videos and tidbits that we can all learn from. So she is the co-coach in the program. You also get the Facebook community. And because this time around, you get five expert audio trainings from the previous run of the Together in Love mentorship, which is huge. So go to the link in my Instagram, Wit and Love, and apply for the program. You can also go to the show notes at the bottom of this page and apply for the program there. Once you apply, I will review your application and get back to you to let you know if you've been accepted to hop on a call with me, but you definitely want to apply as soon as you possibly can because we have very limited spots and we only have a few weeks before the mentorship begins. So get in there, apply now. Let's kick off 2021 right. I wanted to talk to you guys about our new sponsor, Let's Get Checked. Now they're doing testosterone tests where I find this really easy because it's uncomplicated. They can send it directly to your door. It's in discreet packaging, so nobody knows. You can collect your sample, you get to review your results. And then from there, a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone And you get a prescription if you need. So what's really great about this is that you're able to check where your hormones are at. And I know for a lot of us out there, including women, it's really great to know where your testosterone levels are and for men as well. The first test that you get is your free testosterone, and that's the first biomarker that they test for. And why you want to know this is because your body uses it to produce sperm, maintain a healthy sex drive, maintain muscle strength and mass, and produce red blood cells, which is... Absolutely important. So you guys check them out, get your testosterone checked. Super easy. Don't have to go to the doctor. Plus we're quarantined right now. So you need to stay home. This is a really easy way to do it. Head over to www.trylgc.com slash wild love. I'll say that again for you. It's www.trylgc.com slash wild love. And you get to save 20% off.
1: Today, we're talking to biological anthropologist, primatologist, and Darwinian feminist, Amy Parrish, the world's leading expert in bonobo studies and a professor at UCLA.
0: I loved this episode because we really got into the difference between sexual monogamy and social monogamy, which I completely learned something new about, and how women run shit.
1: Be sure to check the show notes to learn how to help out Bonobo Conservation International. Hope you guys enjoy it. Okay. Whitney. Wednesday. Miller. Here you are. And so excited. I know I say this sometimes, but
0: (laughs) I am. You do actually. I do. I get
1: very excited about our guests, but today I'm particularly excited because Mm. my friend, Dr. Amy Parrish, is here. We're sandwiching her. She's, it's it's an Amy Parrish sandwich. Mm. And Amy is. One of the world's leading experts, I'm going to give it to you, the world's leading expert. on you heard it here. Bonobos. Yes. And who are, well, we'll let Amy tell us who and what bonobos are. But she was one of my favorite experts that I interviewed for my book on True. And I think that her studies of um, the behavior of non-human primates are going to blow people away today when we hear her thoughts about it.
0: I'm super excited because don't me, I feel like most people think that chimpanzees are our closest relative, right? That's true. Chimpanzees were studied much more thoroughly
2: and earlier than bonobos, and so we knew less about bonobos for a long time. And so we built most of our models of human evolution on what we know about chimpanzees. And um, so then it was uncomfortable when we had this other closest living relative, they're both 98.5% genetically identical to humans. And it turned out that their behavior was radically different. And so the people who'd already built a lot of models based on chimps didn't necessarily want to relinquish you know, their kind of corner on the market of man's closest living <laughs> mm-hmm. relative. And pretty much they meant man. They didn't really mean human. It was very male-centric. And um, my research revealed that um, in the bonobos, it's a matriarchy. It's a female-dominant species. And that made a lot of people uncomfortable. Ooh, okay.
1: <laughs> hey, time to start digging in
0: the-
1: <laughs> But among our closest living non-human primate relatives, matriarchy is the way things are versus chimp um, reality, which is that there's coercion of females. There's a lot of male violence. There's male dominance. People were pretty uncomfortable when you told the world that. And can you talk about some of the responses within your field of primatology when you told them, look um basically our closest relatives are a lesbian matriarchal hookup culture. (laughs) Tell people who don't know about bonobos what they are and then about your finding in response to it,
2: if you would. (laughs) So we're equally closely related to chimps and bonobos, and we share some characteristics with each. So it's true chimpanzees have this kind of demonic reputation. They, They do have a lot of sexual coercion of females. Males commit infanticide on infants that they haven't sired. Um, They do a lot of hunting and meat-eating, mostly of monkeys. Um, They commit warfare on other groups. And, you know, a lot of those traits, I have to say, humans are are typical of humans Mm. as well. Um, In bonobos, when I started studying them, very little was known. And what was known suggested that there were atypically friendly relationships between males and females. Not that they were monogamous or pair bonded or anything like that, but they seemed to affiliate and associate with each other much more than a typical mammal. And so I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. And it would um, make a really nice comparison for work that my undergrad advisor had done on baboons. So Barbara Smuts. Barbara
1: Smuts, (laughs) our professor Mm -hmm. at the University of Michigan. Amazing. Love
2: Yes. Go on. Yeah. So she had written a book, "Sex and Friendship in Baboons," about heterosexual pair bonds in baboons, and I thought, well, this will be really interesting to look and see how that pattern compares with bonobos. But as soon as I started watching them, I realized that something far more interesting was going on: unrelated females were playing with each other, having sex with each other. They're not really lesbian. Um, In bonobos, all individuals are, um, I would say, bisexual. So all individuals have sex with both males and females, but nobody's exclusively hetero or homosexual. Um, But they were having sex with each other. They were being nice to each other's infants. They were sharing food. They were... um, dominating males in all kinds of ways, like attacking them and inflicting blood-drawing injuries. The females
1: were attacking the The males.
2: males. And nobody could make sense of that, right? Because that's so contrary to our narrative of what's normal or natural Mm -hmm. in our species. And so each zoo had sort of a a folkloric story about what was wrong with their particular male, right? Something had to be wrong. So they would say, oh, you know, when this male was young, a female keeper took him home to nurse him back to health after an illness, and you know, she must have ruined him and made him soft. and Made you know, him a pansy, <laughs> pansy <laughs> bonobo. Yeah. Right? right? Which was really funny. And But I knew from working, I've worked with most of the world's um, uh, zoo population of bonobos, that I was seeing the same pattern wherever there were multiple females, that they were having a lot of sex with each other. They were then um, being very nice to each other, forming these coalitions, and then using them to dominate males and have the power in the group. And so when I first proposed this, um, within the primate community, some of the chimpanzee researchers weren't really eager to hear this news. And so... um, (laughs) that flipped
1: everything on its head.
2: (laughs) Right. And so one researcher said... (laughs) (laughs) One researcher said, well, it's not... Um, it's not female dominance, it's strategic male deference, which is an absolutely insane... In
1: other words, he was saying... The males just let the females think they're dominant.
2: Right. And then for strategic okay. reasons, they're stepping <laughs> <Okay>. back. <laughs> Nobody's ever suggested that when it's male dominance, that females could have the power, but for strategic reasons, they're stepping back and making it look like right. you know, the males are in charge. And so what do you think, okay, if it is a strategic strategy, what, why would males let themselves be dominated? What do you think was the... Uh, Was it for sex? Of course. That's what I was saying. That's the
0: only place (laughs) that my mind went. Right. Yeah.
2: So, yeah, that was the explanation that um, these researchers offered was, well, of course, um, what's really happening is that males have the strategy of letting it look like the females are in charge so that they can get more sex out of them. (laughs) Oh, Lord.
1: Even (laughs) though— Impose human Maybe those little monkeys just
0: like to be dominated. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they have
1: no choice.
2: Well, right. And, and you know, we always in science look for the most parsimonious explanation. Yes. What is the simplest explanation for this phenomenon? And it was clear that these males were incurring really heavy costs. Females were biting off toes and fingers sometimes. Whoa. Um, a lot of injuries had to be treated by the vets. In one case, they bit a male's penis in half. Um, and the, fortunately, the vet in that case was a specialist in microsurgery. So he was able to um, sew the penis back on, but he had to account for how frequently they get erections. And so he had to use all these different size stitches. And fortunately, that male went on to reproduce after that. Wow. So he was really lucky. That's like a miracle surgery. Uh
0: Maybe this is, I mean, this is kind of on topic, but let's just say a male human's penis got cut off, or I don't even know if you could bite it off. Like
1: what happened to, to Lorena Bobbitt and her husband.
0: John know. Wayne
2: Bobbit. Yeah.
0: Well, we'll yeah, she it. she cut his penis off. She,
1: she pen- chopped it right she, off. She she cut his penis off after years and years of abuse and coercion and um threw it, you know, um threw, she threw it out it. the car window. She was like in a fugue state. And um his penis was successfully reattached. reattached. But what happened was um in the trials afterwards, she was tried for assault and he was tried um, for, I believe, uh, domestic violence and maybe for rape. Um, what happened was because the story of the cutoff penis was so big, nobody focused on the fact that right. she had been abused for years and years, unlike a female bonobo.
0: But did they have to like turn around the highway and go back? And yes, get- they had to find it. <laughs> there was a
2: search posse. Yeah. So it happens a lot in Thailand too. Smokes. Um when I lived in I lived in Thailand for two and a half years studying white-handed gibbons. And um that was a really uh, frequent cultural narrative was males had this fear that women would cut off their penises. And apparently it does happen there. You know, women have to save face all of the time. They have mm-hmm. to be quite um publicly facing um Uh, Their public persona has to be very submissive and that kind of thing. But there's a point where they've had enough, you know. And so at that time, this was in the 90s, the world's experts on penis reattachment surgery were in Thailand.
0: Interesting. Um, But now we have more reattaching experts?
2: You know, I'm not sure. I haven't followed up on that. That would be an interesting (laughs) thing.
0: (laughs) Well, speaking
1: of near lethal injuries or aggressive injuries, one of the things you did
2: is you looked at the veterinary records. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I was hearing all these stories from different zoos about what was wrong with their particular male and, you know, why he was- You know what one of the
1: zookeepers said to me? And you know, I love the zookeeper, but he said to me about their bonobos that he thought that the females were being given hormones for birth control and that it was making them unusually aggressive. Nobody ever want, none of the zookeepers Amy found out ever really want to say, um, yeah, the females are dominant. They just kind of can't. So, I'm sorry, go
2: ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, from working at multiple zoos, I knew that many zoos had this pattern of males getting injured. And so, I decided to look at the veterinary records because the vets treat any blood drawing injury. And what I saw was an overwhelming pattern 95% of the injuries that vets were treating were adult females inflicting blood drawing injuries on males. And so um, I started looking more closely at that and and making the argument that this was part of the natural repertoire of bonobos. And sometimes people ask me, well, is um, is it a phenomenon that we only see in zoos? But it's not. In the wild, what we see is males have more space to escape and you see them being more peripheral on the group. Mm. on the edges of the group um but they are missing more fingers and toes than females are um we used to attribute that to snares so poachers in the forest set these wire snares to catch um, a lot of different animals that they want to hunt. And sometimes great apes get stuck in them and they lose, you know... A digit. Yeah, or hand or foot. It's really sad. Um, but so we started to... I started to think, well, maybe some of those injuries that we've attributed to snares were really caused by females. Just
1: the females.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you see it all the time. One way that we can measure dominance is um, something called displacement. So if I walk over to you... And let's say you've just built a really nice nest. So say eight, I built eight, a
1: really nice nest with a lot of leaves. Yeah, great. It's beautiful. Did a, and Comfort. I did a great <laughs> job.
2: See it now,
0: Wednesday. <laughs> you
1: spent a lot of time. It. You know, I you're really looking it. forward. I slayed my nest. <laughs>
2: yes. <laughs> and you're really looking forward to being in your nest and you're super excited. And you immediately get up and walk away. And I take your nest and I lay in it and I enjoy your nest and you never even get to come back and enjoy it. Ooh. That's called a displacement. That's a really good measure of dominance. So okay. you can watch those over time. And arrange them and and figure out a dominance order from that. So you did that. You studied who's displacing whom. Exactly. And it was the
1: females displacing the males?
2: Always, yeah. And, you know, in chimps, um, males rarely share meat with females. Right. Um, They mostly share with other males, Mm -hmm. occasionally with the female who's ovulating. Um, In bonobos, the females control the meat. They also do their own hunting. You're good. Thanks. Okay. um, We're going to
0: displace them.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So in bonobos, females control the distribution of meat. There are descriptions from um, Democratic Republic of Congo, where which is the only place bonobos right. live, of females consuming meat and males having temper tantrums under the, the branches where the females are eating meat. Because they're not getting they get any. any.
0: They don't get any. Because they're so,
2: low men on the totem pole.
0: Exactly. So no. how are they so different, chimps and bonobos? Well, I think
2: the ecology in the two populations is really different. So where chimps live, there are really small fruit trees that are spread um, pretty far apart. And so it doesn't make sense for females to spend a lot of time hanging out with each other because then you have to go further to get enough food. So each female carves out her own little kind of core territory within the larger community boundaries um, of the territory. And so they don't, it's not really efficient for them to even associate with each other in bonobos, the fruit trees are larger and can support big parties. And also the bonobos are willing to um eat more kind of um what what's called terrestrial herbaceous vegetation, basically vines and plants and yeah. things on the ground that are more evenly distributed and easier um, to come by, yeah, less you know, less to compete over less and competition. so. Abundance. Yeah. Abundance. So they have the opportunity to hang out together. And from that, they started to kind of overhaul the, you know, the, the social system.
1: And one of the other interesting things you figured out about bonobos, and then you figured out that these things went together, was that if a female bonobo is solicited by a male and a female at the same time, she'll choose the female. Can you talk she about that a little bit, about
2: yeah. female bonobo sexuality? So you can tell usually when bonobos are about to have sex, one comes up to the other and they do this sort of arm around gesture where they put their arm around the other individual and then that individual kind of flips onto their back often and then they have sex face to face, which we used to think was just purely a, a human activity, but it turns out it's not. And, um Oh, shoot, I forgot your question. I'm About <laughs> when a
1: female bonobo... So bonobo um, life is so nice that sometimes a bonobo, a female, will be solicited by a male oh, and a female right. at yeah. the same
2: time. Right. So let's say two individuals are coming and soliciting a female for sex. They're doing the arm around gesture. Or you can do this thing where you extend your arm and you kind of wiggle the end of your fingers and every bonobo knows what that means. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? And so um the great thing in bonobos is males don't sexually coerce females. So if a female does doesn't want to have sex with the male, she can avoid that by just not looking at him in the eye. And eye contact is really an important part of um, uh, of facilitating a sexual interaction. So the female, sometimes she'll pick the male, but quite often if she's being simultaneously solicited, she'll pick the female. And um, both chimps and bonobos have these really large genital swellings. So the genital area swells up, particularly as they get close to ovulation. And often in zoos, people are really puzzled by that. And they say, you know, what's what's wrong with those monkeys? And of course they're not <laughs> monkeys, they're apes. And there's nothing wrong. I mean, male chimps and bonobos think those are beautiful. Those and, big <laughs> genital animal swellings. Right. And they're they're not just in chimps and bonobos, they're in about 25 different species of primate. And they evolved three separate times, apparently to solve a similar problem, which is how do you efficiently mate with lots and lots of males? And chimpanzee females need to do that to make sure that the males don't target their infants for infanticide. Males are less likely to kill a baby if it could be theirs. In bonobos, females have these big swellings almost their entire cycle, and they're more frontally oriented than in chimps. And the clitoris um, protrudes out of the swelling. It can. It's made out of the same tissue as a penis, it's and it all can become erect. tissue Yeah, so they can have sex with each other, uh, females, and the the action of that that um, that sexual encounter is kind of more back and forth Rubbing. than in and out. So that would probably provide more clitoral stimulation than um, sex with a male, right? Right. And so I, that's my hypothesis for Your why. Your hypothesis
1: is that the females are having sex with each other because it feels really good. Right. Because of those forward-facing, richly enervated clits. Yeah. And that... Rubbing feels better than the intercourse. You also discovered an amazing thing about our very close non-human primate female relatives, which is one of the things that they can actually use the clitoris for and do once in a while.
2: Intromission that's true. because the clitoris can become erect to about two and a half inches, they can they can intermit them in the swellings of the other females. I'm not sure how appealing that is to another, you know, that's still two and a half inches. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it seems like more of the external rubbing. The external um, rubbing yeah. is the
1: thing, but once in a while, yeah, they use it. their own clitoris as a dildo. Yeah.
0: Or as, Wow. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> they're even creative.
1: That's very creative, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you discovered these things about um, female, bonobo, sexuality, and power. How are they linked? That, female dominance among bonobos, and female sexuality? How do they go hand in hand?
2: So it's really rare in mammals for unrelated females to get along. So either they tolerate each other or they avoid each other or they're very aggressive to each other. But it's super rare for, in mammals, unrelated females to have any kind of sustained relationships that might be something that we would characterize as a friendship. So I was struck right away that females were... Being so nice to each other and to each other's infants and not being competitive. Hanging out. Yeah. Yeah. Sharing food, playing with other, you know, mothers' babies. You hear about strong female relationships, say in mice or in lions or in giraffes, where even females will nurse each other's babies, but that's Mm -hmm. always in the context of kinship. So those are always, you know, nieces and nephews and cousins and stuff like that that you're helping out. And it just doesn't happen in mammals except, you know, in to some extent in humans, and to a very large extent in bonobos. So it was fascinating for me to notice that pattern and then try to figure out how they do it and why they do it. And part of how they do it is by having sex with each other. So it helps to reduce tension that might exist over things like um, negotiating um, feeding time. So if you have um, keepers providing a lot of food, typically in other species there would be a lot of aggression over that food and you would have to throw the food to different individuals to make sure the lower-ranking ones get something to eat. But in bonobos, they have sex with each other and then they peacefully share the food. There's still, you know, some like minor squabbling. And of course, if you have a chance to have fruit in both hands and both feet and kind of hobble off with it, you you will. But <laughs> that's what I like to do: <laughs> stuff your cheeks full and just kind of walk off with as much as you can. But There's no fighting really over food and um, there's a lot of pre-negotiation that happens through that sexual encounter and allows them to then share the food. So power and sex are linked in the sense that sex can diffuse tension and then help facilitate those bonds and then those bonds in turn allow the females to act out of a cooperative interest and have the power in the group. So
1: the sex helps them build coalitions. This is fascinating. And be powerful. Yeah. Yeah. On exactly the opposite of chimp females. Mm -hmm. But we're always telling the chimp story about humans until Amy comes along. And you were, when you started studying bonobos, or when you first brought some video of bonobos having sex with each other and started to tell the world that you thought bonobos were a female-dominant species— You were what? How old were you?
2: I guess 26, maybe, something like that. Wow, Uh, busting into
0: the scene.
2: Busting into the patriarchy. Oh, maybe 24.
0: Yeah. I don't
1: know, something like that. So, (laughs) I mean, for those who are not watching the video, just imagine this petite, blonde, blue-eyed, 24, 25, 26-year-old woman coming in and blowing up primatology (laughs) and saying, (laughs) Everything Actually, you assume about yeah. <laughs> yeah about our closest relatives is untrue.
2: Yeah, and you know it wasn't just this one chimpanzee researcher who, with his strategic male deference idea, that um, was resistant. Um, other researchers were really avoiding characterizing it as female dominance. So they would say it's a species that's almost co-dominant, or. <laughs> <laughs> This is science. you know you test things. and you you apply a a statistical right. test to it, and you figure out is that the the explanation that's most reasonable or not. So we're going to great lengths to try to avoid calling it a matriarchy or female dominance. So, um at one of the um the zoos where I worked, they would give people tours. And when they would get to the bonobos, they would say, "This is an egalitarian species governed by the females." Well that's not <laughs> egalitarian if it's governed <laughs> <egalitarian>, <laughs> if it's governed by the females right that's right. that's a matriarchy um so there were those kinds of reactions you know both from the public and from other scientists i i took my first um videos of sexual behavior home and showed them to my godparents, you know, over Thanksgiving or Christmas or something. And and they're not super religious. It's more like cultural, you know, cultural religious affiliation. But nonetheless, we sat on the couch and they looked kind of stunned and they said, somebody gave you a grant to do this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. And then we went to the Understanding Chimpanzees Conference, which was held in Chicago and was a fantastic event. It was about 300 chimpanzee and bonobo researchers. This was in 1992. Or maybe ninety one. When
1: people knew hardly anything about Monroe. That's right.
2: That's right. And Jane Goodall opened, you know, the session, and um, she just walked up to the mic and began pant hooting, you know, which is a chimpanzee greeting. And will you do one for me? Yeah. I can try, but I can't do it the way she can. So it's sort of like ooh 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 ooh, and then it ends in this giant scream that I can't do. But. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's pretty really good. That Wednesday.
0: Oh my god! Wow! Awesome. You don't want to hear my howler monkey. <laughs> oh my god! I do. That was so awesome. <laughs> Br- hit us with it. With the howler monkey. Yeah. Sure.
2: <laughs> that is so cool. I can do part of a gibbon duet. Yes. Do
1: it. Ooh, ooh.
2: and then the male jumps in. He's like, and then this is really beautiful. And then together like that. Gorgeous. Okay. So Jane Goodall opens it up. She she does her pant hoot and the whole audience pant hoots back, which was amazing Mm. to have 300 people all pant hooting. And it was like connecting over those 6 million years of evolution um, with chimpanzees and bonobos and just, it made your hair stand on it. So then um, when I, so somebody gave a talk about bonobos who had done some field research and at that time, not much field research had been done because it was a pretty dangerous place to work in, in right. Zaire, you know, and what's now Democratic Republic of Congo. <coughs> Sorry. No, no problem. Um, and so this this woman showed this, you know, this slide and it was all these green leafy trees and, you know, she was using a laser pointer to say, you know, do you see that pink dot right there? That's a, you know, a female genital swelling and everyone was kind of squinting and looking, okay, you know. And then I gave my talk right after hers, and I had this giant slide of just a female genital swelling with all of this ejaculate <laughs> on it.
1: <laughs> <So, laughs> ejaculate from many different
2: males. Yeah, yeah. So I was talking about the ejaculate and the swelling and everything. And um, my um, one of my... Um, one of the co-chairs of my PhD committee, Franz Duvall, yes. uh, was standing in the back of the room and there was another male primatologist standing by him who said, how can such a delicate woman t- talk about such things? <laughs> <Wow. laughs> it's really funny.
0: So you were like personally getting some pushback and like There were some gendered,
2: definitely yeah. gendered aspects to the, yeah. You know, there was one chimpanzee researcher who said the only reason that I, um, you know, saw bonobos as female dominance was because of my own personal feminist politics. And of course, we all have our lenses, but the great thing about science is it's self-correcting through time. Mm -hmm. And I had never accused that scientist of only looking at hunting behavior because he had some kind of patriarchal male, man, the hunter, you know, aspect. So I didn't think that was very fair. You know, there was no justification to think that they weren't female dominant. Right. And as if you're
1: point of view, weren't rounding out the science. I mean, right. that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. That's what Sarah Hurdy says, right? She says, it's kind of a strange way to frame it to say, oh, this feminist perspective is distorting the science. It's just rounding it out. There's, That's right. Yeah, because
2: and I was so lucky. Sarah Hurdy was the other co-chair of my PhD committee, so I had two amazing people as mentors. And you know, Sarah only ever took three students. I was the second of the three students that she took, and she was just incredible. Um, yeah. to and get to learn. If
1: people want to learn about like the evolutionary origins of human female sexuality and motherhood and female bonding. Sarah Hurdy, who is was Amy's um, doctoral dissertation advisor, HRDY. She wrote these incredible books, one called Mother Nature, one called Mothers and Others, one called The Woman That Never Evolved, about all those topics. And you call yourselves Darwinian feminists. That's right. Can you tell us about that and how you're yeah. How your bonobo work led to your Darwinian
2: feminism? So the Darwinian feminist movement started in the early 90s and it was um, Barb Smuts from University of Michigan and Patty Gowadi, who's an amazing evolutionary biologist um, who, um, well, in one... Uh, in one NOVA video, she's described as blowing the lid off of avian monogamy <laughs> <laughs> All right. with her research on bluebirds and, right. and the female preference for um, novel males and things like that. And the- oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh my gosh, and we know now that you know a lot of nestlings are not sired by the male that's feeding them. So there's a difference between social monogamy and sexual monogamy right. and and Patty Goati was a huge part of that deline- delineation. Oh, she
1: was part of our, our now talking about social monogamy versus actual monogamy. That was Patty
2: Goati. Yeah, Patty. And so it was Barb and Patty and Sarah Hurdy and there were just a number of female scientists who were also feminists and saw that there was a lot of overlap in the questions that we were asking. Who has power? How do you get it? What is it good for? What's it like not to have power? What are the costs of that? And um, there wasn't a lot of dialogue going on between disciplines, and that's typical in academia anyway, but I think particularly between um, what were then women's studies departments um, and, and biology there was kind of an antagonism. The women's studies people felt that biology is often used to justify patriarchy and male dominance, which it has been in the past, for sure. If you say, oh, chimpanzees are our closest living relative and they have this really strong patriarchy, our last common ancestor with them was 6 million years ago. Therefore, patriarchy must be very deeply embedded in our DNA and kind of inescapable. So that was a legitimate criticism, but not all scientists are, you know, um, interpreting it in that Mm -hmm. way, where good scientists are looking at variation and why do you see one outcome in in a particular set of environmental circumstances versus a different outcome when the environment changes. Um, And their other criticism was that science essentializes male and female differences. And that's largely actually um, a legitimate... um, criticism of evolutionary psychology, Mm -hmm. where they say all males want young, fertile females and all females want older, resource-laden males. And so they give the rest of science a bad name, I think, but by by focusing on that kind of essentialism. Mm -hmm. And so those were legitimate criticisms, but that ignored a whole lot of other science out there that's not doing that, that's really good. And so it was a good opportunity for people who are doing good evolutionary biology science, who are also feminists, to bring all that together. And so Sarah and Barb and Patty convened um, a meeting at Sarah's house of about 14 or 15 uh, women. And I was fortunate enough to be included. They were all the alpha females of every kind of sub-discipline <laughs> evolutionary biology. And I was Sarah's um, grad student at the time. Um, I was pregnant with my son, And I'd been nervous about telling Sarah because I didn't want her to think, you know, that I was going to slow down or something like Mm -hmm. that. Um, You know, she she was she was fine with it. And all of these other women, all of these other alpha females, were really reassuring and saying, actually, the best time to have a baby is during grad school because you won't have time again until after you have tenure and a lot further into your career. They were encouraging
1: you. It was really nice. They were like a
2: bonobo sisterhood. Yeah, right. right. That's (laughs) right. Yeah, and we all gathered. On so they wanted to see my bonobo videos and. And, uh, you know, it was VHS back then. Mm-hmm. So we all gathered in one of the bedrooms that had a VHS player. And we all sat on the bed and watched these, you know, bonobo female sexual behavior videos together. <laughs> this is a great bonding moment. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the birth of Darwinian feminism. Right. And then Patty Goati went on to have a conference about it in Georgia um, and to publish a volume out of that. think forget the exact title, but Patricia Dare gowadi is the editor of mm-hmm. this volume and it's something about intersections and Darwinian feminism. Yeah. It's a beautiful book, really um, a great read. And so they were pioneers in this field. And, right. Um, so we've actually had some real important updates to sexual selection theory since the early 90s with these amazing yeah. women. And well, it's all ignored.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of it is ignored, although I feel like these ideas are getting... More mass cultural traction now a little bit, but it, for what you guys really basically did, if I understand correctly, is you wanted one of the things that you all did was you looked at the role that female sexual and maternal behavior plays, and that it plays a has played a huge role in evolution. Female strategizing, female maternal behavior, female sexual behavior is driving
2: so much of evolution, but everybody was looking at male behavior. That's true. And really discounting females. So the idea was, who knows why? Sure, there's female choice, but who knows why females like yellow or spots or stripes <laughs> or a particular courtship dance, that it's all just somehow um, the aesthetic whim of the female. You know, So it was really discounted. Right. but there have been plenty of scientists Marion Petrie, her work on peacocks was amazing. She took male peacocks um who had these really impressive trains and she would cut eye spots out of them and then so they still had the same length but eye spots were missing and the females didn't want to mate with those males. Hmm. okay. is that aesthetic preference? Well, she designed an experiment where she had all of these um, uh, male peacocks in cages, and females could walk up and down, look at them, and whichever <laughs> one they spent the most time in front of, she assumed was their their preferred mate, and so she would let them mate. And when uh, so she paired some females with their preferred mate and other females with non preferred mates, and found that the viability of the offspring was much higher when they got to pick their preferred mate. So wow. they were they were That's picking things that matter to how what the clutch size is. How many survive through Such size? Uh, the is number of eggs. How many the, eggs? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, you know, how big they are when they fledge, how many survive to adulthood, how many go on to reproduce. All of those kinds of questions are measures of your biological success. Mm-hmm. And it turned out female choice matters. It's not, um, it's not aesthetic and it's not just a whim and it's not unimportant. Um, but beyond that, there have been other really important updates to sexual selection theory, like um. You know, Darwin really focused on, okay, males compete over access to females, and that explains horns and canines and body armor and things like that. And uh, females choose males based on things like pretty songs and courtship dances. But he never discussed female-female competition, and anybody who's been to high school right. knows that females mm-hmm. compete, yeah. right? And of we course. call that
1: intersexual competition.
2: Right. And that was, you know, something that um, that is really important to acknowledge. Or that males are choosy. Not every male takes every copulation. Mm -hmm. So in chimpanzees, males prefer uh, proven mothers. So they actually don't like the young—it's a really different pattern than in humans, right? They don't like these young and experienced females. They like females who already show that they can successfully rear an infant. So females spend time trying to convince males to mate with them. Or in langur monkeys, the temple right. monkeys that you see in India, um, my former partner, Volker Summer, um, showed that um, females will actually try to convince males to mate with them on days when they're not ovulating. and the chance Tricky, of, tricky. Well, this is important because these females <laughs> live in a harem and they're competing against the other females in that harem. And so they're intentionally trying to drain the male of sperm so that other females can't right. get pregnant. It's sperm.
1: Oh, it's competitive sperm depletion, that's, right? That's right. Crazy, because right? it's costly to produce sperm. So if you have it, your female competitor doesn't have it. That's right. You win. And, and then do the females
0: realize what's going on? Like, can you- well, the males realize, and so they're very
2: choosy. The females okay. come up and they present their hindquarters and they shake their head and they shiver their bodies. And that's a sign that means mate with me in Hanuman Langers. And the males kind of look at them and they, you know, they have olfactory cues. I'm not just, sure. Exactly. So females get turned down. And that was something that was never part of our narrative, right? Sex is imperative for males. There's the copulatory imperative. And there and goes you know. the
1: whole idea that people have that men are just naturally more sex- than women mm-hmm. and it's part of our evolutionary heritage. If you look at the behavior of non-human primate females like you and your peers did, that the, all these assumptions about human sexuality get challenged and they start to go poof 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 like That's they're unsupported. So
2: true. And then you look at humans, why are human females spending so much time invested in their appearance and embellishing their appearance? if males will take any copulation that comes along, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Ooh. why are we doing all of the stuff to ourselves, right? So there's a lot of reasons to think that these are important additional components to Darwin's original too. But the one that's m- most fascinating for me, and um, really thanks to Sarah and Patty, um, I, I became really interested in this, is he never looked at how males and females compete, that they might have differing interests and differing mm-hmm. priorities. But if you think about... The cost for females of bearing an offspring, particularly in a mammal where there's internal gestation, there's lactation, even the size of the egg versus the sperm, females are investing more in each stage of reproduction mm-hmm. than males are or investing differently. Males are investing in competition with other males in sperm production and things like that, defending territories. Females are in- investing in the quality of a very limited number of eggs and then supporting that fetus through gestation. And then it takes more calories to lactate than it does to gestate. So it's a really different path. You know, for a, an orangutan female, if um, she mates with a male, that takes about 15 minutes. And afterwards, they go their separate ways. The male never invests in her in any way or in the offspring. Um for the female, if she gets pregnant, it's an eight-month gestation followed by seven years of nursing. Whoa. Seven years. As
1: somebody who nursed each baby for nine months, I'm just going to say, that's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Right, I am suddenly, I have new respect for female orangutans just in this <laughs> They <moment. laughs>
2: are the ultimate mamas. And then they protect that offspring for another three years after that. So it's about a 10-year investment per offspring yeah. for an orangutan female. Very costly. Versus the 15 minutes for the male, which, you know, downplays a little bit the male's investment. Who knows mm-hmm. what he had to do to get access to that female, but still, it's a radically different level of investment.
0: So knowing this research, this is what makes me curious, did it change your personal relationships in your life? Yeah, so I was oh, I raised by too. a very feminist mother.
2: So in first grade, we had to <laughs> um, we had to write a little essay on you know, what we wanted to be when we grow up. And so I said to my mom, oh, I think I'm going to write about that I want to be a nurse. And she said, absolutely not if you want to be something in the medical field, you can be an anesthesiologist. Um, <laughs> they make more money and there aren't enough women in that field. And so you should do that. So I went back to school and, you know, I reported <laughs> to my teacher, well, I- I want to be an anesthesiologist, and she didn't know how to spell it, which was a great lesson for me. She sent me to the library. and I learned how to look it up, and even today, if I had to write it down again, I'd have to go back and look at how to <laughs> mm-hmm. how to spell it again. Trick. But um, so you know, I was definitely raised. You know, I remember one point in high school, um, you know, uh, working at the polls with my mom, and um, uh, she said, "Oh, you know, Amy, you could be a senator someday if you want if you want to." And I said, "Only a senator." I was I was deeply indignant at you know fourteen. That she would think that <laughs> not president or, you know, exactly. Could use a good exactly. one right about now. Yeah. But even when I was a baby, you know, her um, she took me for one of these you know well baby checkups, and the pediatrician said, "Oh, you know, maybe your daughter could grow up to be Miss America," and uh, my mother said, "Oh God, I hope not." <laughs> so i grew up in that kind of household right um which was really interesting um so already i had been kind of steeped in the idea that it's really important not to be in a in a relationship where you're dependent on men particularly financially dependent um and you know i i and then being mentored by sarah and patty and barb and all of these wonderful people looking at that dynamic of the competition between males and females i was definitely aware pretty early on that um you know what men and women want is different, and mm-hmm. there are evolutionary explanations for that. And so this this idea that suddenly, if you're going to say marry someone, you know, I've been at wedding ceremonies where not only do you take you know the two individual candles and you light the the one candle that's going to represent your your the solidarity going forward. Sometimes they extinguish the individual candles. Right? This idea so, that so you're not even an individual person anymore mm-hmm. is so unrealistic um you know this idea that you're going to be in this monogamous relationship forever is is totally something that you can make work but it's not really the default in our evolutionary biology so it's fine to aspire to it and i expect that of my partner and he expects that of me and that's fine but don't think it's going to come easy right mm-hmm, you right? have to mm-hmm. like you're going to have to be very mindful to make that happen mm-hmm. and the default is much more having multiple partners and all kinds of extra pair copulations for both sexes and you know uh probably in a female's lifetime multiple paternity was was more typical than monogamy so um i would say well you know and an, another aspect was um when the data on how male um the male genes in the fetus can manipulate the female's physiology during pregnancy so things like preeclampsia this dangerously high blood pressure is caused by the male genes in the fetus um also um Uh, gestational diabetes, that male doesn't know if the next baby you're going to have is going to be sired by him. So he wants you to pour as many resources as you possibly can into this baby, mm-hmm. right? But for you, you're going to have lots of babies regardless of who sires them. And you want to invest in this baby enough that it makes it, but not so much that it compromises future babies. So there's this kind of genetic mm-hmm. warfare going on between the male and the female genes in the fetus and how they're expressed. And it has this really negative impact on your physiology. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that really changed my feelings about, You know, pregnancy.
1: We think motherhood's all warm fuzzies, but like there's there's a war war going on in there. Is that called maternal fetal microchimerism? Is that what we're talking Um,
2: about? I'm not sure that that's the right term, but it's the genetic imprinting, right? Right, which can come from either the chimerism, I think, is a little bit different, which is also fascinating. So,
1: but there's this fascinating war going on between mother and fetus even during gestation. Well, and
2: after you've had a baby, after you've had a pregnancy, um, that that the male who sired your baby's uh, genetic material material can be picked up in your body like it's there for life, right, right? It's- so, yeah, it just changes. And you know i mean, I, I really uh, love my partner and and we have a great relationship. and I've had you know great partners before him, and I'm really grateful with um the father of my son that we have a really cooperative relationship and are still really good friends, and we still Take our son on vacations together, and yeah. you know, that makes it really nice. There's no reason to be hostile about it, but, um, yeah, I think it probably changed my idea of, you know, my expectations of whether things are going to endure um, and and what the dynamics are going to be within the relationship, and then how clear you have to be about what kinds of expectations you have around um, sexual interaction. Mm-hmm.
0: Something I did want to go back to, because I'm not super in the know about this, is what you were saying about socially monogamous versus, versus sexually, sex. sexually monogamous. Will you explain right. that to the right.
2: listeners? Okay. So um, I spent two and a half years in Thailand um, with my son's father studying white-handed gibbons. And what was known about gibbons at the time, they're another ape. They're an Asian ape. They're the ones with the really long arms and, and Love the, the cool duets. They're really cool. Um... What was known about Gibbons at the time was that um, the typical social pattern is one male living with one female, and then there's some associated juveniles and infants.
1: And for the longest time, people would hold up Gibbons as this example. For
2: humans. For humans, that, of, you for know. Humans, that okay.
1: they're lifelong monogamy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So sorry to interrupt. No, to no, no. Go no. On. That's
2: true. And even though they're not. Um, particularly closely related to us. I mean, you know, it kind of goes, chimps and bonobos are our closest relatives and gorillas and orangs, then would come gibbons, right? So it's pretty far back. But um, they're
0: like anything, lifelong monogamy. There, there <laughs> so it, it is. Just finding <laughs> <an example. laughs> yeah.
2: But nobody had, um, had studied gibbons, um, multiple groups of gibbons at once. They'd kind of either done a survey where you walk through the forest and you say, okay, there's a group and there's a group and there's a group and you write down all the compositions or you study one group for a couple of years. Um, But if you only study one group, it's going to change their interactions with other groups because this group has these weird humans following it around. So um, so this was mostly the work of my partner and his students. They um, started getting multiple groups of Gibbons used to having humans follow them. And what they started to see was that um, after these morning duets that males and females did in the morning, the male would disappear. And everybody had interpreted that as, oh, he's off defending the boundaries of the territory for this for this pair-bonded couple that, that, that he's part of. But while he was gone, the neighbor from next door, the neighboring male would come in and sit right by the female <laughs> and right by the infant and you know, the researchers are holding their breath because when you see something like that, often that male will kill that infant that he hasn't sired in many species. But these males didn't do that. So that suggested that there might be some possibility they'd sired that infant. So then we started to think, well, where is that male who is presumably off, you know, defending the boundaries of the territory? Might he be next door with that other female? And so that led to this (laughs) distinction between... Sexual monogamy, which is who you have sex with, and then social monogamy, um, which is who you live with, right? What so you can live pres- with one partner. What you're
1: presenting and what you're doing.
2: Right. Right? Right. And so I wouldn't even call one actual monogamy mm-hmm. because they're just different. They're referring to different things. One is about your sexual behavior and one is about your, um, you know, your social arrangements mm-hmm. and who you live with. So a lot of white-handed gibbons, they live with one partner, um, but they also have sex with other partners. You know, uh, when when uh, the opportunity Right. Mm-hmm. So,
1: you know, a lot of us aspire to sexual monogamy, but what we're able to do is social monogamy.
2: Mm-hmm. And that's true. Yeah. And then, you know, you have these times when one or both partners might have what are called extra pair copulations and they might be uh, condoned or they might be sanctioned. They might mm-hmm. be secret. They might be out in the open Um and they can be, um, you know, kind of episodic and or they can be, you know, more enduring. And so, I mean, if you look at most of the world, the expectation isn't even monogamy, right? Particularly mm-hmm. for males. I mean, right. You know,
1: and what your research has shown is we shouldn't presume that monogamy is any more natural for females among other well, things, exactly.
2: That you- and I would really credit Sarah Hurdy for that in her book, The Woman that Never Evolved, to really show that, um, you know, the title refers to this idea that, Darwin and lots of other scientists had had painted a, a picture of females as coy, as passive, as uninterested in sex, that, you know, the female would endeavor for a long time to escape or would p- pick the male that's least distasteful, you know, language like that, um, which really gave you the idea that females could hardly bear sex. It was, right? And, wow, you know. did
1: they ever meet a female Langer? Right. Well,
2: then if that's true, <laughs> if all of that is true, why have we, re- we removed the clitorises of 100 million women worldwide mm. to date? Right? If right. females really don't like sex, you wouldn't yeah. have to remove that you Why are we trying so yeah, you don't to, to contain do and coerce right. them? Right? Mm-hmm. So what it turns out is that all of that is kind of part of a, a social agenda to make women believe that it's unnatural to like sex because you want them to do what patriarchy wants them to do, which is to be passive and non-competitive and, you know, swooning on the couch and coy, you know, lay back and think of and England. Choosy. And,
1: you know, and choosy. Coy and choosy and disinterested. Yeah. I like the way... Amy helps us understand that contemporary human females who are interested in polyamory or who are struggling with monogamy or maybe want an open relationship. I love the way your work helps us normalize that and understand Mm -hmm. that that too is part of the evolutionary script of human female sexuality. Like that's
0: part of it. And it's like, let's just understand the information and realize that what, we've been fed may not be accurate. And That's so nice. let's have the information. And then like you said, you can choose what, oh, what agreements you have in your relationship, but let, let's be real.
1: Let's be real. Okay. I want to talk about one thing that you haven't talked a lot about yet. You let me write about it a little bit, but speaking of rewriting the script about sexuality and male and female Um, presumed male dominance and presumed female subservience. You discovered something about bonobos and female dominance in bonobos that was really shocking to me when you told me about it and has shocked other people after I wrote about it, about female bonobos sexually coercing males. Can you
2: talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I would say it's not... Um, it's not a frequent aspect mm-hmm. of their behavior, but because females are so dominant, they pretty much get what they want. And so um, when other researchers had studied bonobos in the past, like Franz Deval had characterized these sex for food exchanges in bonobos where um, males would come and bring food to females and offer it to them in exchange for sex. And that really made a lot of sense, right, with... Um, With our idea. That
0: sounds like a date.
2: (laughs) Right. Right. Or prostitution, right? It's kind of the original prostitution. familiar. Ringing a bell. (laughs) The idea was, you know, it really, it aligned very well with our um, classical understanding of the limitations on males and females from a biological perspective: males should be willing to give up food because the only thing that limits how many babies they have is access to fertile females. So food shouldn't be that important. Like they should be willing to give that up in exchange for sex. For females, they're going to have a set number of babies, you know, um, regardless of how many males they mate with. More or less, there's there's some caveats to that, but you know, the idea was that they didn't get the same benefits of mating with lots of partners that. That um, males did. And so they should care about food because they have a limited number of babies. And so this exchange made sense, right? Um, So when I started studying bonobos, the females had matured and they were definitely dominant over the males. They didn't need males to give them food. They took the food that they wanted. Um, And so males would come to them and offer sex in exchange for food. So it showed that gender roles weren't set in stone, that it could be either sex that um, wants... Wants sex and either sex that's willing to make a, uh, to, to find a currency to make that exchange. So that was really, um, interesting. And it, so that goes to your question, um, about female sexual coercion, because when males get, um, excited about anything, food, um, or tension, they get erections.
1: When they're stressed. Yeah. Right?
2: Any kind of stress or, yeah. So, um, Females were kind of, you know, demanding. If males wanted food, they were demanding sex. So that worked out okay. But sometimes females wanted to have sex with males, and they were really nervous because females can hurt you. Um, So they have erections, and these females would just kind of follow the males around. You could see the male looking over his shoulder and crouching down and acting submissive and (laughs) doing this grimacing, this like, please don't hurt me and stuff. And you know, a couple times I saw a male just like lie down on his back and a female mounted him. So. To me, that really looked coercive. Like, the male didn't want to. He Mm -hmm. tried to remove himself, but eventually it was just kind of like, go ahead. But it's not a typical. It's um, not. It's not not like a – yeah, it's not a super common um, pattern. But I did see – Uh, once in Stuttgart and they brought in a new male and these two adolescent females just relentlessly had sex with him. And he didn't look reluctant, but he looked worn out. So this went on for days and he had like
0: this. (laughs) I'm sure he looked worn out.
2: (laughs) He had this dried ejaculate, you know, all over his thighs. And he just, I mean, you could just tell, Um, but he wasn't, he was. It looked like he was a willing participant in all of that. And then there was one day when one of the females just turned on him and started attacking him instead. And the other adolescent female looked really surprised, like, oh, wait, what's happening now? What are we doing now? And the, the attacking female looked at her like, well, you know, are you in or are you out? And so she jumped in and started attacking him too. And that, you know, was hard to watch. And, I mean, we have a lot of sympathy for these males. But one of the interesting things is how much more sympathy we have for males getting attacked than females getting attacked. So Mm -hmm. um, when males are attacked, it's like, oh my God, we're going to have to make some intervention in the group. We have to give females timeouts when they're Mm -hmm. behaving aggressively. We have to separate the males at night. If it's male chimps attacking female chimps, well, that's how chimps are, and that's part of their natural behavior. Wow. wow. So it's a really interesting difference. So that was just a a rare instance where I was able to see females kind of turn on that switch of, yes, we like to have sex with you, but we're also going to remind you of your place in this group and who's in right. charge.
1: I love the way you are challenging our most basic understandings about Not just who animals are, but our evolutionary heritage Mm -hmm. and who we might be. So thank you for that, Amy. Yes. Absolutely. It's It's so fascinating to hear. The connections are really deep and profound. And um, how can people who are listening and want to know more about your work, where can they find you on social media?
2: Uh, At Dr. Amy Parrish on Twitter. And um, I I tweet about bonobos and politics and women and... um, other cute animals. So. All the good <laughs> <new like>, things. <laughs> so find her there. <laughs> Thank, Thank you so Amy. much. having for having us. Love Power it. to the sisterhood. Woo! Bonobo yeah. sisterhood. Yeah.
1: We need Darwinian feminist t-shirts. We do. I'll that make would be them. Wonderful. Okay. I love that. That would be great. I want one. I think like we my could order. do a
0: whole like bonobo t-shirt.
1: Yeah. Kind that's
0: of vibe. True. Yeah. That's true. Yeah.
1: Dar- yeah. We could do one t-shirt that's bonobo sisterhood and one that's Darwinian feminist.
2: Mm-hmm. And, you know, they need our help. The bonobos really need our help. Ooh, maybe only- we should
1: keep recording this. Let's just okay. do a quick thing because sure. then we have to record our introductions. But let's oh, sure. do a quick thing about
2: Them if people want
1: to know more or get involved.
2: How they can. Amy
1: Parrish works with the bonobo Conservation Initiative. Can you tell people a little bit about how they can help the Bonobo Conservation Initiative?
2: Sure. So Bonobo Conservation Initiative is an organization started by Sally Jewell Cox, who had worked for National Geographic And learned about bonobos probably 20 years ago and just said, I'm going to quit my job and save bonobos. You know, people say things like that, but she actually went and did did it. She actually did it. And so she works in Democratic Republic of Congo, and she has been key to getting the Congolese government to commit to preserving 9 million acres of rainforest for the bonobos. And this is crucial because there are less than fifteen thousand bonobos left, and people hunt wow. them and eat them. It's like cannibalism. They're hmm. you know it's like eating another human. The bush it's really bad, is really bad, and they can't bounce back. They have a four-year interbirth interval, and if you hunt them. Then they can't recover from that in, the, in their population. So that's the only place they live. They need our help. BCI is doing amazing work, and you can find them at bonobo.org. And um, you know, you can you can try to go on an expedition. You can um, you can donate. You can not get the latest greatest cell phone every time a new model comes out or a new laptop because there's a mineral in that called coltan, which is mined out of the forests where bonobos and gorillas live. And um, the miners kill the bonobos and gorillas in the process. Their water gets poisoned. And, you know, it's some mineral that we need to conduct things in our electronics. But we need to lobby our electronic companies to come up with another solution to that. We need to hang on to our own electronics as much as possible. And we need to donate to help the bonobos so that they can live on this earth as well and, and that we don't, you know ruin things for everybody else. For our
1: closest relatives. Mm-hmm. Give it up for your closest relatives. Yep, Check Absolutely. out Bonovo Conservation International and hold on to your iPhone for God's sake. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Hey, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, it would help us a lot if you would leave
0: a review. Yeah, leave a review, subscribe. We want to know how you guys felt about the episode. It really helps us out a lot to continue the success of the podcast and keep spreading our message.